I have always been interested in how things work. I used to take things apart to see what made them tick, but I wasn't so good at putting them back together again. Understanding means that in a sense, you are in control. From the age of 14, I knew I wanted to do physics, because it was the most fundamental of the sciences. Welcome to the Ground Belief Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Gadsden, and today my guest is Dr. Kenny Boyce, who's a philosopher at the University of Missouri. And this is part two of our conversation that revolves around Stephen Hawking and his work, especially as it interacts with arguments for the existence of God. Uh, last time we talked a little bit about the cosmological and fine-tuning arguments and some of Hawking's criticisms. Today we're going to take a different direction and talk a little bit about epistemology in science, uh, specifically the debate between realism and anti-realism as perspectives on scientific knowledge and how that affects uh, arguments for theism. We'll talk a little bit about whether there can be scientific evidence for God, and we'll talk about uh, the God of the gaps objection that many raise toward theism. Okay, so we've covered uh, two of the big topics I wanted to get to, how Hawking, um, his project in the grand design is to possibly undermine two of the big arguments for theism, namely the cosmological argument and the fine-tuning argument. And we've talked a little bit about how we might respond to what Hawking is saying, that um, it certainly isn't settled. You know, I mean, he gives some reasons to doubt um, the premises of those arguments, or he gives some reasons that might undermine those arguments, but it certainly hasn't uh, refuted them. There are some ways that, that theists can respond. But, um, but I'm also interested, as a person who's interested in epistemology and how beliefs are formed, in talking a little bit about some of the, some of the tricky parts of how science and scientists, and Hawking in particular, um, approach knowledge and what science can really tell us about the nature of reality and and how science informs our beliefs and telling us what we ought to believe or what we shouldn't believe. And um, in our culture, of course, science is um, kind of top dog when it comes to knowledge. Um, and so people are definitely going to pay attention to what scientists are saying. And rightly so, rightly so. I mean, science is, is, is amazing and is a great source of knowledge. Um, but it's not the uh, it's not the end of the story, right? So, um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about something that Hawking says in his book, and I should say it's not just Hawking, but Laudenau as well, his co-author. Um, uh, he talks about how he approaches science, and there's traditionally there have been like two competing views on how people think about science: the realism and anti-realism. Um, and could you just say a quick word about what those two models are and how they differ? Yeah, so there's there are different ways of characterizing what one means by realism or anti-realism, but a common way of characterizing the distinction is that scientific realists think that science gets us at the truth, or at least at the approximate truth. Right. As science progresses, we find more, out more and more about the underlying nature of reality. Scientific anti-realists think that's the wrong picture of science. Really what science aims to do is it aims to give us theories that are empirically adequate, that organize what we can observe, that accurately predict 
what we would observe under other kinds of conditions, but as to whether we're getting at any kind of underlying reality, that's uh, that's a, a metaphysical question that's really beyond the scope of, of science. Right. So when I think back to elementary school, maybe the first time they showed us what an atom was, and they showed us a, a little drawing, and there was like a nucleus, and then there were these circles around the nucleus that had the various uh, you know electrons orbiting the nucleus, and and I guess for an elementary school student, you're thinking, wow, that's that's what it looks like. Like if I could get down, if I could shrink down to atom size, that's what I would see. Or is it just a helpful model that's helping us visualize or describe what's going on in the atom? Is that kind of is that kind of what you're talking about? And yeah, so a realist would say, yeah, we started out with this kind of naive model of the atom, uh, where it was like a solar system and you had right. the electrons in orbit around the nucleus. But you know, that there and there was something right about that right. picture. But as we learned more, we developed more accurate models of the atom and maybe those aren't quite right either, but we're progressively getting closer and closer to the the truth of the matter about what atoms are like. Yeah. Whereas an anti-realist would say, well, we are making progress because that old model we had, it didn't predict the things that we observe as right. well as this newer model that we have. But are, are these models actually telling us what the world is like down there, whether what the what atoms are like or even whether there are atoms? Well, those those are questions actually that are beyond the scope of science because in science we're just interested in finding models or theories that are empirically adequate that accurately predict our experience who right. knows what what right. the underlying reality is really like does a does a water molecule actually look like mickey mouse i mean that's what we <laughs> want to know right is uh -huh, it uh -huh. one ball with two smaller balls stuck on it the images that are being um, obtained now with the best microscopes um they're starting to actually get images of atoms. Is that right? Yes. And so I'm someone who has scientific realist inclination. So I'm inclined to think, yeah, we're actually um, getting images of atoms. Uh, a scientific anti-realist would be a little bit more circumspect. They would say, well, we're getting observations that <laughs> the model predicts. Right. Uh, and, and that's good. But whether we're really seeing atoms, well... Yeah. Who, who knows? And they would, I, I heard one time, you know, there was the different schools of physics. One school is the, the Copenhagen School of Physics, which is like, shut up and do the equations, right? Uh -huh. It doesn't matter whether it's real or not. It's just, if the equations work, if, if we can, you know, predict things, if it gives us technology and mastery over nature, then that's what really counts. And who cares whether it's real yeah, or not? Yeah, that's right. Because quantum mechanics, it's really difficult to figure out what the equations would actually be telling us about the underlying reality. So one school of thought is, well, we really need to work hard to figure this out. What what is What kind of picture of reality are the equations actually painting? And scientific realists would be more interested in that kind of question scientific anti-realists would go the way that you just suggested and say, yeah. yeah, just shut up, do the equations. Who cares even if the the model gives us any kind of coherent picture of what the underlying reality is like? If it predicts our experience, it's doing what we want it to do. Right. So here's how I think this might make a difference because as we're thinking about, well, what should people believe about the universe or about God? And depending on your view of science, it might affect like, how you draw conclusions from the things scientists are discovering. So 
I mean, if Hawking gives us this great model of the universe, this no boundary condition and all these things that maybe don't require a first cause, um, well, on a realist point of view, you might say, wow, he's really getting at the reality of the universe and he's showing that we don't need God or that God's not a part of this creation. Um, but on an anti-realist view, you would just say, well, he's giving us an interesting model that, that works empirically and, and makes predictions, but it doesn't really tell us anything about the underlying nature of reality, which may very well include God. Yeah, that's right. That's what an anti-realist would be inclined to think. So, so he, what's interesting is in Hawking's, Hawking and Mladenow, in their book, um, they take what sounds like an anti-realist point of view on, on science. So I'll just read a quotation from page seven of The Grand Design, where he's talking about, um, you know, there are these paradoxes sometimes in physics where, you know, things that sound contrary to common sense, like that a particle could be in two places at the same time, which... To me, it still sounds crazy, but, you know, but physics says it can happen, I guess, you know, uh, depending on your interpretation. But they, they say this, um, to deal with such paradoxes, we shall adopt an approach that we call model-dependent realism. Now, it sounds like he's a realist. Right, we'll sounds that way. We'll see, okay. It is based on the idea that our brains interpret the input from our sensory organs, like our eyes, by making a model of the world. When such a model is successful at explaining events, we tend to attribute to it, and to the elements and concepts that constitute it, the quality of reality, or absolute truth. But there may be different ways in which one could model the same physical situation, with each employing different fundamental elements and concepts. If two such theories or models accurately predict the same events, one cannot be said to be more real than the other. Rather, we are free to use whichever model is most convenient. Uh-huh. Now, does that sound more like realism or anti-realism? It sounds like anti-realism to me. Uh, and I can actually see two possible interpretations of what he says there. So one is what I'll call a metaphysical interpretation. has to do with the, the actual nature of reality. So one thing he might be saying in that quote is where you have two models that are equally successful in predicting the phenomena there's just no fact of the matter hmm. as to which one is true now if that's the interpretation of what he says there then there are going to be models that include god that accurately predict the phenomena and there are going to be models that exclude god that accurately predict the phenomena so if that's the right interpretation of what he says then i think an implication of his view is not atheism, not that there is no God. Mm -hmm. Rather, the implication is there's no fact of the matter about right. whether there is such a being as God. Now, <laughs> that strikes me, and I think it would strike a number of atheists as well, as an <laughs> yeah. extremely implausible implication yeah. of his view. I mean, whether any of us can know whether there's a God or not, surely there's a fact of the matter as yeah. to whether there is such a a being of God. Surely there's a truth to be yeah. had. Either that, God exists or he doesn't. Yeah, that's right. Um, another interpretation, and I think a more sensible interpretation, whether it's the one he intended, a, a more sensible view that one could draw from those words is what I'll call the epistemological interpretation, which has to do with what we can know or rationally believe. And on that interpretation, I, I, what he would be saying is basically where you have two competing models, apparently competing models, that predict the data just as well, 
we're not in any position to know which one of those models is true. So not that there is no truth of the matter out there, but we're not in a position to know what that truth is. But if you take that interpretation, mm. then that's also bad if you want to use some of the claims he makes in the book as an argument for atheism. Right. Because on that interpretation, it's not science tells us these things, therefore we have a good reason to believe there's no God. It's, well, here are some models, maybe they're atheistic models that accurately predict our experience, but we're not in any position to know whether they're true. Right. There are also theistic models that accurately predict our experience. Yeah. And on this view, we're just not positioned to know either way which yeah. one of those is is correct. Yeah. So on this on this view, there is a fact of the matter. That's right. Um, but scientifically, at least, we just aren't in a position to really say whether or not this is the correct model or, or this model. Um, really tells us about the ultimate reality or not. It's just, it's useful, it works. That's right. That's all we can really say about right. it. Right. So on that on that view, it would be a mistake to try to draw out um, views about the underlying nature of reality and say that we know those on the basis of science. If this suggestion is right, we can't know right. what the underlying nature of reality is from science. But of course, most people that read Hawking want to say, oh, look at this great work Hawking's done. He's he's shown us the way the universe really is, and that universe doesn't include God or doesn't require a God, and that's telling us something about the way things really are. But if he's really an anti-realist in this epistemological sense, then he hasn't really told us any such thing. He's really just given us, well, here's a model that works, um, and but we can't really draw any conclusions about whether God exists or not. Yeah, that's right. Now, to be fair to the atheist who wants to make use of Hawking's work, uh, an atheist might say, well, I, I reject his views about philosophy of science, mm, so I reject okay. his anti-realist views, but I think he's on to something when it comes to the theories that he suggests. Sure, and sure. those do tell us something about the underlying nature of reality, and that does give us a reason not to believe in God. But then we're back to our earlier discussion about whether those considerations really do undermine traditional yeah. arguments for the existence of God. Yeah. What I also find ironic is that, of course, the discussion or the debate about realism versus anti-realism is a philosophical debate, right? Yes. I mean, this is something philosophers of science talk about. It's right. not really a scientifically testable or a scientifically decidable um, question. And Hawking, in the very beginning of the book, he says, I think in the first paragraph, that philosophy is dead. You know, yeah, right. and you know it's just worthless. It just it hasn't kept up, and we just need to leave it behind. And then he proceeds to do some philosophy, right? That's right. Usually, people who tell you that they're not going to do philosophy because philosophy is dead or it's meaningless just end up going on to do bad philosophy. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, we won't get into that right now. I might come back around to that. But um, another epistemological point I wanted to make that's connected to what we just talked about is. Often people want to point to science um, and say, well, there's no, either there's no scientific evidence for God or science has disproven God in some way. But, but the, first, the first claim, well, there's no scientific evidence for God. Well, what I find interesting about that question is, is it, 
is it really the providence of science to to be able to prove or disprove or show or to reveal whether or not there's a God? Because isn't there something about the nature of what science is supposed to be doing that just can't really tell us much about whether or not God exists? I think that's an interesting question and I think in part it might depend on whether you're more inclined to towards a realist or anti-realist perspective okay. regarding science. So I think if you think that science can tell us things about the underlying nature of reality, then it might be that some of the things that science tells us either support the claim that there's a god or support the claim that there isn't a god. Right. Um, now maybe not. I, maybe the kinds of conclusions that scientists come to just they're interesting but they don't have much bearing on on the issue of whether God exists but I don't think in principle we could say scientific conclusions have no bearing on the issue of whether God exists okay, on, a, yeah. on a realist perspective sure on, on an anti-realist perspective science tells us nothing about the underlying nature of reality so it's much more difficult to see how on an anti-realist perspective science could give us reason not to believe in God. Maybe maybe another question is um, when people say, well, I need to see evidence for God. I want scientific evidence uh -huh. for God. And I think there's a problem with that question because science, by the nature of the discipline, is seeking physical causes, natural explanations for natural phenomena, physical phenomena. Um, and God, by definition, the least the way most theists conceive of God is not a physical being that really um, would not be the sort of thing that would be detectable by any scientific instrument or it wouldn't be the sort of thing that you could really test scientifically. Yeah, so that's, I, I think this gets into lots of interesting questions about the nature of explanation. I think some of this is what underlies the debate about whether the intelligent design movement, for example, mm -hmm. is really science. Um, it's not clear to me that every scientific explanation has to invoke physical causes to explain physical phenomena. So some scientific explanations, for example, appeal to laws of nature, okay. whereas laws of nature have to do with this, the structure of the universe, but they don't necessarily tell us this thing causes that right. thing. So there are structural explanations in science. I mean, I can imagine, I mean, indirectly how we could have evidence. I mean, in the cosmological argument and the fine-tuning argument seem to be that sort of yeah, indirect evidence. That's right. So I think of the fine-tuning data as some scientific evidence for the existence of God. Okay. For example. Okay. And that's on a conception of evidence that just says evidence is something that raises the probability of something being true. Yeah, that's right. Roughly. So at least to a first approximation, uh, okay. there are some complications that arise. But to a first approximation, I do think of evidence as uh, something that raises the probability of a hypothesis. Okay. Yeah, that seems fair. I do want to go a different direction here um, because when it comes to what Hawking has, has talked about in his book, um, some people will say, well, um, Hawking has just um, closed a few new gaps. He's closed some of the gaps that theists have always appealed to as um, showing how God is needed to explain certain certain things. And, and 
people often accuse theists of using God of the gaps reasoning. Like, oh, we don't know what caused the universe, so we'll just say it's God. And we don't know why the universe is finely tuned, so we'll just say it's God. And certainly, historically, and, and Hawking even does some of this in his book, he, he talks about historical mistakes that people have made over the years of positing, well, a God did this or did that. That's why the universe is like this or why the world is like that. And, you know, the classic case is, oh, the volcano's erupting. God must be angry. You know, God's causing the volcano. And then we learn eventually, oh, there's a natural explanation for why volcanoes erupt. And then we can say, oh, okay, well, we don't need to posit God anymore. So now we've just closed one of these gaps. And it does seem like over history you have this, I suppose, an argument that could be made, an inductive argument of some kind, that we keep closing gaps. All these gaps mm -hmm. we thought God occupied, we keep closing them with science and keep closing them with science. And so we think, well, maybe we're reasonable in thinking we'll just close all the gaps eventually and that, that we shouldn't um, and that all the, all the theories or all the theology that theists are doing is just more God of the gaps reasoning. Uh -huh. And I've had conversations with friends um, where they want to know, well, why, why isn't, like say, the cosmological argument or the fine-tuning argument just another example of God of the gaps reasoning. And right. what would you say, like, what makes a difference between, say, the fine-tuning argument and, like, saying God made the volcano erupt? Okay, yeah, so I think that the, the problem with many forms of obviously bad examples of God of the gaps reasoning is that they're basically ad hoc um, mm -hmm. kinds of reasoning. So in general, in science, uh, the fact the fact that a hypothesis is ad hoc, that is tailored just to explain this particular phenomenon with no independent motivation is a bad making feature right. of a hypothesis. And so what you get when you invoke God to explain the eruption of the volcano is you have theism, which is the view that there's an all-powerful, all-good, uh, all-knowing being. Right. You, you've got theism and you just kind of tack on to it in an ad hoc way. Oh, and by the way, um, that being explains why this volcano erupted. Right. So that's right. a that's a classic kind of example of ad hoc reasoning, and I think it's bad for that reason. Yeah. But when it comes to something like the fine-tuning argument, things are different because there there's actually a predictive connection between theism taking, taken as a hypothesis and the claim that the universe is fine-tuned. So one would expect that a holy, good, all-powerful, all-knowing being would have at least some motivation to produce a life-permitting universe. Why? Right. Because life, and a particularly intelligent life, is morally valuable. Right. And so a holy good being is going to be motivated to, at least to some extent, it's going to have some reasons to bring about a life-permitting universe. So the probability that one would get a life-permitting universe is higher on the assumption that theism, and not, on the assumption of theism alone, not theism with some ad hoc hypothesis right. tacked onto okay. it, but on theism okay. alone, the probability is higher that you would get a life-permitting universe than one that doesn't. Uh, permit life. Right. And that's not to say that theism um, 
guarantees that, that's that right. God is going to create a, a, a life-permitting universe so that it necessitates it in that's some way. Right. It's just that it, it's consistent with it. Just if you just take theism by itself, what we the way we conceive of God, it seems perfectly reasonable that God would be interested in such a thing. Yeah, perfectly not only, consistent. Right, and not only consistent with theism, I would say, um, but theism actually raises the probability right, so of it's, there yeah, being it's even a life-permitting yeah. universe. Okay, so yeah, it could you could predict it. Not again, not that it guarantees it, but you could predict that that would be something God would be interested in. Yes, that's right. Okay. Whereas you wouldn't necessarily just looking at theism, you wouldn't think, "Wow, I bet that God would want to make some volcanoes erupt." Yes, that's right. right. So uh, if you want to explain the eruption of a, the volcano by appealing to God, you can't just appeal to theism. You also have to add, "Oh, and by the way, that God is interested in having volcanoes erupt," and that's right. not something that you get or would expect just given theism alone. So, um, so you know, we want to be able to distinguish cases of God of the gaps reasoning. And, and even though science, of course, has filled in a lot of the, the gaps in the past that may have been ad hoc, um, that, we, that doesn't mean science is going to fill in all the future gaps as well. Well, that's right. And I think when we think about God of the gaps kind of reasoning, we also should think about uh, a version of God of the gaps that's criticized from a theological perspective. So I think that there's bad reasoning associated with this perspective, but there's also a kind of perspective that people who believe in God have been inclined to criticize. And that perspective is that nature pretty much gets by on its own and God is just there to plug in whatever gaps are left right. in nature. So. God, uh, God explains how nature manages to get along where it can't get along on its own. Right. And then science keeps closing those gaps by showing us, well, it looks like nature uh, doesn't have such gaps for oh, God to yes. step into. But that's, that's bad from a theological perspective because traditionally theists have believed that God created the world he created it in an orderly fashion, and that he's behind all of it, including its natural regularities. Um, and so it's not that God just squeezes into some gaps. In fact, you might think that if there were such gaps in nature, that would actually tend to undermine mm. a traditional theist view, because theists think that God is this rational being who's created an orderly mm -hmm. world. It doesn't you wouldn't expect a world created by such a being to have a bunch of holes in it that he constantly has to come in and tinker with to keep the whole machine running. You would right. expect a being like that to to build a well-oiled right. machine, so to speak. And I, I actually think the fact that the universe does have the kind of interesting order that it does, uh, an order that, when physicists look at it, displays this deep and beautiful underlying mathematical symmetries, an order that's discoverable to beings like us. Yeah, I think that that all uh, is much better explained given a theistic point of view than a naturalistic point of view. That's the sort of thing we would expect yeah. if we lived in a theistic universe. So I hear a couple of different things here. I mean, one thing people might ask is, are you saying that um, all the all the, all the causal interactions that are going on in the universe? things we would normally attribute to just normal cause and effect by the laws of physics, that God is causing all those things to happen? Or are you saying, you're saying something different than that, right? Yeah, well, there are, there are, there are different ways that you could fill in 
the kind of theological perspective that I describe. So let's go with the most the most plausible rather okay, than the most okay. esoteric. Okay, yeah. So well, of course, I think the most plausible view is the sort of view that I hold. <laughs> of course, <laughs> of course. And so I think that God has created the world and he's created objects in the world and he's made those objects such that they behave in certain kinds of regular ways so that he doesn't have to constantly tinker with them to get them to do the kinds of things that he wants them to do. Right. Um, but he's uh, he's he explains the fact that those things are like that and behave that, that way because he set them up to behave right. in these regular ways and he i also think he sustains them okay. in existence and i also think that god himself does interact with the world but not in the way that a, a tinkerer who's constantly fiddling with a machine to keep it running interacts with right. the world i think god has built some room into the world so that he himself can interact with beings like us for example right so thinking about a, a, a game of billiards or a game of pool right so you're not saying that you know when one ball strikes another and causes that second ball to move, um, that God is the cause of that. And he set up the universe yeah. such that um, those things can can cause each other to move without his without him sort of tinkering. That's right. But the laws that govern those causal relations, that he actually not only created those, but sustains those laws. Because scientifically, we don't really have any explanation for why the laws are the way they are or why they continue to be the way they are, right? Yeah, that's right. And even if we did have some explanation for why the laws of nature that we think of as the laws of nature are the way they are, it's hard to see how that wouldn't appeal to deeper laws of nature. And right. we could just ask the same question again right. about those. So you can almost think of, I mean, you're playing a game of pool and you're hitting one ball against another. Um, and those things are, are acting just according to natural laws of physics. But God is, is still relevant to that situation because he's sustaining the very laws that, that govern the behavior of those balls. And so he's, if he were to stop, you know, supposedly, if he were to just stop sustaining the laws of physics, um, then, then who knows what would happen when you, I mean, you would never be able to, you know, play a game of pool. Because yeah. who knows where the ball would go when you struck it one way, it might go the opposite way. Um, be no longer be predictable or, or orderly. Right. Um, yeah, I think there, there are two phenomena to be explained. So one is why do we have such an interesting regularity to the world yeah. in the first place? And another is why does that regularity continue? Mm. And um, I think theism is relevant to both of those questions. Yeah. And of course, and you're saying there's, but there's also cases, I think I heard you saying this, um, that there are also cases where there might actually be what we might call a miracle. Yeah, right? that's Where right. there are like new causal chains being launched where something happens that cannot be just explained in terms of natural laws and cause and effect. Yes, that's right. Um, and there, there are different ways to think about the nature of miracles. So you might think that the world pretty much just goes on on its own, but God has certain reasons sometimes to causally interact with the world in a special yeah. way to communicate with beings like us, right. for example. Um, or you might think that God has left a little bit of room in the world for him to be interacting with it all the time. Uh, so, for example, quantum mechanics uh, right. on some interpretations is probabilistic 
Yeah. It does it it gives you probabilities for how things will go, but doesn't give you deterministic reasons to right. think that things will go one way or another. On some views, God decides how the the, the, the quanta the quantum yeah. the quanta will behave. And not because not because God's got this broken machine that he has to fiddle with all the time, but because God was interested in creating a world that he could yeah. interact with. So on this kind of picture, God is constantly interacting with the world, but on some occasions he may interact with it in a special kind of way or a way that he typically doesn't yeah. interact with it. And those might be examples of miracles. Well, I think um, we'll bring the, the interview to, to a close. I feel like we could go on and on um, nonstop because there's so many great issues here. Um, but Kenny, thank you so much for, for being willing to have this conversation about physics and epistemology and Stephen Hawking. Um, really appreciated having you here today. Well, thanks for inviting me to do it. It was fun. This has been the Ground Belief Podcast. I'm Chris Gadsden. Special thanks to our guest today, Dr. Kenny Boyce. Uh, Keep on the lookout for future episodes, and thank you so much for listening.